It is truly an honor to be here today in this place in front of all of you. Uh, I see so many faces of so many people that I love so much, and I would just like to echo some of the thanks already given to our wonderful seminary and our preaching professors. Uh, Dr. Gregory has truly served as a mentor for me in developing my voice from the pulpit this semester, and also a thank you to Jacob for your wonderful worship leadership and in planning this service that has already been so meaningful for me, as I hope it has already been for you. Uh, So, as Dr. Gregory told you, I'm currently in my third year of being a resident chaplain, living and working here in Ruth Collins Residence Hall on Baylor's campus. As a resident chaplain, my responsibilities are separated into three categories per my boss, Burt Burleson, and uh, that's presence, pastoral care, um, and programming. Bert was a good Southern Baptist uh, preacher, and so he knows all three points should start with the same letter. So we have three Ps. And uh, pastoral care is one of the categories that I think it's safe to say that I spend some of the most of my time uh, working in. Uh, As Dr. Gregory told you, Collins has 600 freshman women. So at any given moment, really, there is a situation in which I could probably walk in and offer pastoral care. Um, Working with 18-year-olds, especially that many 18-year-olds, is always interesting. And so today I'm going to share with you one of my least pastoral moments, and I hope that that's a gift for all of us. I was at a mandatory hall meeting standing at the front of the room at the very beginning of my first year of chaplaincy with one of our community leaders, that's what Baylor calls RAs, uh, and one of her new residents approached us. So this girl was, I think, four four days she'd been at at college so far. So four days out of her parents' house. And uh, she said to her CL, so if someone wants to send me mail, do they just send it here to this building? What's the address to this building? Uh, and her CL said, well, no, uh, you don't receive mail here. I'll need to send it to your mailbox in the sub. And she said, okay, well, what's the, what's the address to the mailbox in the sub? And the CL said, well, it's one bare place, and then your box number, Waco, Texas, 76798. She's very patient through this whole exchange. And the girl says, well, what's my box number? And the CL tries to begin to explain that she doesn't know the girl's particular box number. She says, I know there are a lot of numbers you've memorized, but you should be able to find this one because it'll have a number sign at the beginning. And I said, mine's like, you know, box number 85486. And the girl looked at us in a moment of confusion before enlightenment hit her face. And she said, oh, wait, do you mean the number that starts with a hashtag? And me and the CL looked at each other, and we lost it, which was not very pastoral of me. But I didn't know what to say. I never would have thought to say, like, just look for the hashtag, and that's the number that's your box number. And I remember looking around that meeting and thinking, these girls are baby children. (laughs) How are they going to make it to the end of the year? Like, they're not even going to make it to homecoming. But you know what? They made it to homecoming. And then they made it to Christmas, and then we made it through rush week, through a lot of perseverance, and then we made it to spring break, and then before I knew it, it was May. And a group of 19-year-old college women was moving out of Collins instead of the 18-year-old babies that had moved in in May, in August. So they made it. And they grew, and they changed and transformed so much in that year. 
in little ways and in big ways. And I love working with college students because I love watching that transformation happen every year. And because even though it's hard for me to see sometimes, their transformation reminds me that I am also experiencing transformation. I don't have to ask what the address to the mailboxes is anymore, and I don't have to look in the table of contents when I'm looking for Ecclesiastes in my Bible. Thanks, Dr. Tucker. (laughs) And so that's hard for me to see sometimes, Uh, but they encourage me in how far I've come. And they also remind me that there is still so much work to do. Our passage for today also reminds me that there is so much work to do. In Romans 7, Paul is talking about sin. And he has been talking about sin since Romans 5. It isn't until chapter 8 that he begins talking about life in the Spirit. So chapter 7 falls right at the end of this section about sin. And it's not until the very last sentence that Paul gives the reader any sense of hope. In chapter 7, Paul's talking about the human experience of failure and frustration that happens when we miss the mark of God's holiness. He wants this failure to be understood for what it rightly is. Sin. Disobedience. An inability to fulfill the law and experience reconciliation with God. And even though all these things are true, we are sinful, disobedient creatures who miss the mark of God's holiness. Paul can't stop there. Because as Christians, we are no longer prisoners of the law. As Christians, we are set free from sin and death, not through our own works, but only by the saving work of Jesus Christ. In Romans 7, Paul is reminding us that the law can never rescue us from sin and death. Just before our passage, in verse 13, he says, Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment become sinful beyond measure. It's tempting to think that the law is the problem. It would be easier to think this way. After all, if the law doesn't save us, then it must be the law's problem. But Paul doesn't allow us to think that way. He doesn't let us off the hook quite that easily. In the very next chapter, he goes on to say that the law is weakened by flesh. And that's why it's not able to save us. It's our own human sinfulness that makes it impossible to live up to the law. And when we are made accountable to a definite and clear standard of conduct, the law, whatever law it is that you're using, Paul here is referring to the Mosaic law, the Torah, the law reveals our own sinful state and plunges us even further into despair. When the law becomes the thing that we're pursuing above all else, instead of God, then we miss the point completely. As Dr. Gregory told you earlier, I used to be a teacher. 
I taught three years of middle school choir after college before I came to Truett, and it was a truly enlightening experience, as I think any extended amount of time spent with middle schoolers is. And one thing I noticed while I was teaching was how many tests students are required to take every year. It was way more than I remembered taking when I was in school. And I found out that students here in America take more standardized tests than students in any other industrialized country. A 2014 survey by the Center for American Progress found that third to eighth graders take at least 10 standardized tests each year on average, and some take up to 20. Students in Europe, by comparison, are more likely to be graded through essays that are then graded by trained educators. Students in places like England, New Zealand, and Singapore are also assessed through presentations, science experiments, and collaborative assignments that more often model what the real world will look like. And students, teachers, and parents in the United States are all saying that this focus on testing in American schools is becoming a real problem. Wendy Bradshaw was a special education teacher in Florida who became so fed up with this public school system of standardized testing that she went on to quit her job. In her resignation letter, which she posted to Facebook, Bradshaw writes, I just cannot justify making students cry anymore. They cry with frustration as they attempt to task well out of their zone of proximal development. Their eyes fill with tears as they hunt for letters they've only recently learned so they can type in responses with little hands which are too small to span the keyboard. The children don't only cry. Some misbehave so that they can be the bad kid instead of the stupid kid or because their little bodies just can't sit quietly anymore or because they don't know the social rules of school and there's no time to teach them. Bradshaw goes on to say that the root of the problem is not in the children, but in a flawed system that values test results over meaningful education. She says, the disorder is in the system which requires children to attempt curriculum and demonstrate behaviors far beyond what is appropriate for their age. The disorder is in the system which bars teachers from differentiating instruction meaningfully, which threatens disciplinary action if they decide their students need a five-minute break from a difficult concept or to extend a lesson which is exceptionally engaging. The disorder is in the system which values the scores on wildly inappropriate assessments more than teaching students in a meaningful and research-based manner. When test results become the thing that is being pursued above all else over a meaningful education, then the point is missed completely. It's one of the most human temptations to pursue the law instead of to pursue God. After all, the law we can understand. The law we can manipulate. God is big and mysterious and cannot be manipulated, it is much easier to deal with the law. But the law cannot save us. Only God can do that through the work of Jesus Christ. The law cannot transform us or change us or help us grow. So if we know that it's not the law that saves us, but instead the saving work of Christ, how do we live that out? 
As Christians, we're involved in a never-ending fight to put into practice our victory over sin. In verse 15, Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Everyone who reads Romans 7 can identify to some degree with the struggle and frustration that Paul is talking about here. And this isn't the only place that Paul talks about this struggle. In Galatians 5, Paul says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. This struggle between law and sin is not, in fact, a strictly Christian experience. Most humans have experienced the struggle. It's a human experience. This is the struggle of any sincere religious devotee who is attempting to do what his or her God demands. But this struggle ultimately ends in defeat because sincerity by itself is not enough. Sincerity can never lead to the fulfillment of God's law. In Psychology Today, Daniel Yankolovich tells the story of a conversation with a young patient. The patient told Daniel that she was worn out, despite the fact that she had not yet reached her 30th birthday. Her life in the fast lane was getting to be too much for her. Too many parties, too much sex, too much alcohol, and too much pleasure had left her exhausted. Why don't you stop? Daniel asked her one day. The patient paused for a moment, stunned by the obvious question. Her startled expression turned to enlightenment as she replied to Daniel, You mean, I really don't have to do what I don't want to do? In some ways, we are all, like this young woman, continuing to do the things that we don't want to do not quite sure how to break the cycle of doing the very thing we hate. We confuse ourselves. This is because we are still acting as if we are prisoners under the law and there is nothing that we are capable of doing on our own that can change that. But this does not have to be the case. We do not have to be prisoners under the law. This does not have to be part of the mature Christian experience. As Christians, we are confident of our ultimate victory in Jesus Christ. And it is this confidence, this assurance, that we have power over sin because of Christ in us, It is the Holy Spirit moving in and transforming us more and more every day into the image of Christ that breaks the cycle of sin that we are stuck in. In fact, Paul is not describing the life of a Christian in Romans 7, 14 to 24. He is describing the life of a Jew, his old life when he was under the law. And now it can seem to us like Paul's describing the life of a Christian, because this struggle is something we can all relate to. And Paul fully admits, as he did in Galatians, that Christians continue to struggle with sin. But the winner of our Christian struggle with sin has already been decided. 
And in verse 25, Paul lays claim to this ultimate victory in Christ, the same victory that we can lay claim to through our relationship with Jesus. But the struggle that Paul is describing in Romans 7 is a struggle that ends in defeat. And by the grace of God, this is a defeat that we will never have to face. Paul says that for Christians, the death to sin that he talks about in chapter 6 and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that he will pick up in chapter 8 and the renewal of our minds that he discusses in chapter 12 will inevitably mean that we sin less and less, never becoming sinless, but sinning less all the same. In her book, Pastrix, Nadia Bowles-Weber tells a story about her church, House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. Nadia, an alcoholic and a former stand-up comedian, started House for All Sinners and Saints out of a desire to reach those who are often excluded by the church in the United States. Her people she calls them, a demographic that she connects with because she has shared in this experience. They started small, but in the spring of 2011, the church began experiencing a time of transition after they got some publicity. She'd preached a citywide Easter service at a local national park, and they'd run a story about her on the front page of a Sunday paper. And so all of a sudden, in church one Sunday, next to the drag queens and the alcoholics, there were soccer moms and middle-aged suburbanites in white sneakers. Nadia set up a meeting to discuss sudden growth and demographic changes with the secret intention of hopefully trying to get the newbies to self-select out of House for All Sinners and Saints. But then, in a conversation with a friend a few days before, something changed. As she was describing her predicament, her friend's response was, yeah, well, you guys are really good at welcoming the stranger when the stranger looks like a young transgender person, but sometimes the stranger looks like your mom and dad. Nadia said that in that moment she could feel actual blood and love pumping through her heart for the first time in weeks. And when confronted with her own sin, Bowles-Weber experienced what she called a heart transplant. She describes it this way, I underwent what I can only describe as a heart transplant. The crazy Old Testament prophet Ezekiel explains it well. He wrote in Ezekiel 36:26 that God has said to him, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But it didn't feel like a removal. Removal is far too pleasant a word. My heart was ripped out. When my own heart started to feel bitter and judgy and hard, and when I had articulated to as fine a point as possible why I was justified in such steeliness, God finally said, enough. And without anesthesia or a sterile environment, God reached in, ripped out my heart of stone, and replaced it not for the first time with a heart of flesh. 
Victory over sin does not always feel good. Sometimes it feels like a heart transplant, but victory over sin, transformation in Christ, is what we are promised as Christians. Though we may still struggle with sin, we will still struggle with sin through the power of the Holy Spirit and the saving work of Jesus Christ. We can lay claim to the victory over sin and death that Christ has already won for us. Not because of anything we did or because of anything that we can do, but only because of the work that Christ has already done. As we approach the end of this year, I approach the end of my time in seminary and my time as a resident chaplain, it is always exciting for me to see the ways that residents have changed and grown throughout the year. Some in small ways, some in major ways. Even more exciting is to catch up with the girls who used to live in Collins, who I've known for three or four years, and to see the way that transformation has taken place in their lives. They have changed and grown in ways that I could not have anticipated years ago. And while it's so encouraging to think about the ways that I have changed and grown during this season, it has become important work for me to remember regularly that this transformation and growth is only available through the work of the Holy Spirit and not because of some work that I have done on my own. I think that this is summarized beautifully in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in the message, Eugene Peterson's thoughtful and colloquial translation of scripture, it says, it is God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we had done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. As I face the end of this year, I'm going to try and remember that growth hasn't come through any of my actions, but through Christ. As we approach the rest of this week, the rest of this semester, may you remember that you are set free from sin, not through your own works, but only by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Amen.